Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, a podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the BoardBench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Our guest here today is Karen Barsa. Karen is a retail expert and corporate director serving public and private company boards. She has extensive experience in premium brand strategies and operations. Her career highlights include serving as Chief Executive Officer of Kyochi Inc., President and CEO of the Investor Circle, CEO of Smith & Hawken, and the CEO of Embark Stores. Karen has also worked at Patagonia as Chief Operating and Financial Officer, where she helped bring the company to its current recognized fame. She is most noted for her turnaround expertise and for bringing vast young companies up to new levels of performance. Karen is joining us here today from her home in Park City, Utah. I am proud to have Karen in our circle of respected friends and colleagues. Good morning, Karen, and thank you for joining us here on The Boardroom's Best. It's a pleasure to have you as our guest. Nancy, thanks so much. It's great to talk with you. Now, Karen, you and I have had some experience in working together over the years. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past, it really been just really sort of on the front of the boiler plate, shall we say, today with boards is the activist front and what's happening. More boards are facing activists. In fact, I heard the other day that there were over 700 activists, we'll call them attacks for lack of better description, that happened just in this past year alone. And those numbers are even mounting even more. So, and as smaller activists are getting together and ganging, one case we actually called them hyena activists because they behave like that, wild dogs sort of attacking at their prey. The challenges of boards and, and what they need to do to really protect their interest or the interest of the company and the, sh- and the other shareholders uh, really has changed. Indeed. It, you know, playing the role of board director has become a far more complex position than it was even just a few years ago. The rise of activists, as you've just described, adds a certain complexity to board service, but so does the fact that companies now are global in nature and, co- and are competing against a number of other entities that perhaps they didn't recognize in the past. So the competitive landscape has changed. The activist landscape has certainly changed the role of board members. And it's a far more difficult position to fill today than it has been in the past. Right. So so as a board member, part of your, your job is to represent those activists because technically they are investors just like the rest of us out there, but not necessarily to the interest of those individuals. And part of this really involves making sure that you've got the right management team and what's going on from that perspective. So let's talk a little bit about how you as a director really look at what's going on in that C-suite with your CEO and making sure that they're actually doing their job to the best possible ability of their skill and bringing the best out of management. You know, Nancy, you're absolutely right. It's the job and the role and the responsibility of a director to make certain that the management team is fulfilling its mandate in looking after shareholder interests. And board members typically have looked to things like financial performance or total shareholder return as measures of whether or not the management team is doing its job. And those things are very, very important. But when it comes to actually awarding incentive compensation, and that can either be in cash or in equity, those performance metrics just aren't enough. And the reason I say that is because it's very important not only to see that the company is doing well financially for its shareholders, but also to look at the quality 
of those earnings. And you can start to look at metrics that dig under the hood a little bit, but those metrics should also include what I would refer to as soft metrics or way of being metrics related to how the CEO and the management team perform their jobs. Because let's face it, not only do directors have a responsibility to shareholders to develop a return for them, but also directors have a responsibility to see that shareholders don't suffer unnecessary costs like uh, failures in brand reputation and fraud and other things that can befall a company and cost shareholders a tremendous amount of money. So how do you do a little bit more of a deeper dive, shall we call it, you know, look under the hood when it comes to your management team and specifically the CEO? Because the board's job really partially is to make sure you've got the right leader at the helm, so to speak. And assessing their performance is kind of a, a soft and difficult job, especially if that's something that a board typically has not done or the dean individual directors and have not done over the course of their career. Uh, One of the things I had heard the other day was that half the boards really actually do a full uh, and confident background assessment, or I wish you call it background assessment, but a performance assessment of the CEO. And what does that really look like? Are you just checking off the boxes? How do you dig deeper? And what does that really do to improve the quality of performance for the company overall? Well, first of all, let's recognize that a CEO reports to the board. So a board, either collectively or individual directors, should never feel as though feedback from the board is something that they're reluctant to give to the CEO. It's important for the CEO to have, and it's important for him or her to be able to act on, to improve, to not be outguessed, all sorts of things. I mean, feedback is a very positive and productive sort of process to have. And you're absolutely right. Constructive indeed. And from what I understand, fewer than half of boards actually give, you know, formal CEO assessments and provide that level of feedback at least annually. So we start with the understanding that this is the job of directors. It's not enough for a director to say, well, heck, the financial numbers are moving in the right direction. We have revenue growth. We have EPS growth. I'm not going to say a word to the CEO. In fact, you should say a word to the CEO because this poor guy or gal is swimming in waters that he doesn't understand unless you're able to give him feedback. So some of the ways in which feedback can be given are, first of all, feedback has to be a regular and frequent process. It can't be something that we do every two or three years and surprise the CEO with some recommendations or assessments that he or she hadn't even uh, thought existed. So that's just unfair. So let me stop you right right there a second. Hold on. So, So what's regular and consistent? Is that yearly? Is it quarterly? Um, And it may vary depending upon the size of the business and the maturity of the company, let's say public versus a younger, more emerging growth company. Well, I think it it might uh, vary based on the phase of growth of the company, but in all honesty, it should happen at the very least annually, especially when you're considering that activists will be looking at the quality of management and the quality of financial performance over time. So give the CEO a chance for Pete's sake by giving him at least annual feedback. Now, in my mind, feedback should be given every time the board meets because the board, um, if it's doing its job, I believe will always have an executive session or an in-camera session with, with independent board members only, excluding the CEO. And at that point, the lead director should be asking board members, how do you feel the CEO is doing? Do you have any recommendations for him or her? 
that's an informal process. The lead director should then spend at least 30 minutes sitting down with the CEO after meetings like that saying, this is what the board is recommending for you. In consideration with the idea that either the lead director, if the CEO is also chairman, or the chairman of the board really has a strong working relationship with the CEO and can provide that kind of critique and constructive input with, with respect on both sides, shall we say, correct? Exactly. So the lead director or the independent chair should have not only a strong relationship with the CEO so he can provide this sort of feedback from the rest of the board members, but also understanding what the CEO is going through and some of the challenges that that person can relate those challenges to the other board members. So it is a two-way street, but I think what a chair or a lead director really should focus on is maintaining certain equivalency, if you will, between both sides and not getting too close to the CEO that he can't see the forest for the trees and vice versa. Um, So you had mentioned really working hand in hand with the CEO in in making sure that they don't see the, you know, too close to the forest for the trees here. Thinking about the composition, I'm going a little off off script here and, and sort of talking about this, but thinking about the board composition and when you've got a chairman who may not have actually sat in the seat that the CEO has, how important is it for the board to be comprised of other CEOs? And more importantly, how, how critical is it for the chairman to maybe have been a CEO so that they can provide feedback in a way that they understand what that person is going through? Or does it matter? I think you've hit a certain sort of nerve um, among directors because there are directors with specific uh, functional knowledge who are who provide a tremendous service on a board right. but aren't necessarily broad enough thinkers or have experience in managing an entire organization whether that's a division or it's an entire company or what have you in the past and what's difficult and what the director who hasn't necessarily managed a lot of people has to understand the CEO works through others a CEO is not Superman or Superwoman. He doesn't get everything done by himself. So the challenges in managing other humans is something that I believe that the lead director or the chair should have experience in. And if they haven't, what does a board do when all of a sudden they find out their lead director or chairman really is not the best communicator other than rotating seats? And I've actually seen boards that just rotate the different chair positions because nobody wants the job. So Sally will serve as, I mean, you're laughing, but it's true. You know, so Sally will serve as chairman of the company of the board for, you know, two years and Joe will serve as chair of the audit committee for two years. And they rotate like it's, it's a responsibility that's like a hot potato. And it seems a little dysfunctional. Well, although in many ways, that's not a bad approach. And I say that because Various perspectives are always welcome. And the fact is the board and the CEO don't meet all that often. What, four or five times a year? And perhaps the chair, if independent, or the lead director might meet with the CEO a couple more times a year. It's not as if directors are working with the CEO on a day-to-day basis. So it can't hurt, quite frankly, to have different perspectives. But where this really starts to, where the board really starts to understand where its strengths are and who works best with the CEO is through CEO feedback. The CEO should always not only provide a self-assessment before any formal assessment, but also give his or her, her sense of relationship he or she has with the board and how that can be improved. So there shouldn't be a time when the CEO avoids saying, golly, I can't work with so-and-so, or this person doesn't hear me when I speak. How can I have a better communication? Or how can I have a better rapport with this, this person? So, you know, developing 
a two-way assessment is tremendously important, and the CEO's feedback should go a long way in board assessment also, and that's a whole other topic that we can cover at some point, and I know you have expertise in that. Thank you. So when a board is just not working at optimal levels, and I'm sure you've had some experience, whether you're inside the boardroom or outside as a CEO yourself, how do you get those kinks worked out so that they're working at really, you know, prime speed and prime operating functions? It's not that the boards are functioning at 100% all the time because we have good days and bad days and, you know, some people are off every now and then. But the key is really to make sure that they're working at 110% at all times. It's not easy to correct those mistakes or vulnerabilities, would you say? It's really not easy to correct. And it's especially difficult in the board environment where basically you are a group of peers. And even committee chairs and the chair or the lead director himself or herself is considered a peer. So it's often difficult for that peer to sit down with his peers and give feedback. So it's a very, it's almost a dysfunctional relationship, I think, between board members. But what I would say is this, that anyone who's in a position of some authority on the board, anyone who's in a position to make an agenda, whether that's a committee chair or the chair or the lead director himself, should have a general sense of understanding that we all work through other humans. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, a chair of a committee, even though he might have tremendous functional knowledge, isn't necessarily the best person to chair a committee if he doesn't understand that humans are the way that things get done. So there should be respect for the other folks on your committee, respect for the other, for your peers on the board and respect from the chair to the rest of the organization as well. So Right. So you just mentioned working through other people, which is critical for any organization. And the board kind of sits at the top of an organization and often with a Chinese wall between the board itself and the bottom of the company. Yet the reflection of the company and the culture and the values and how that organization is building a reputation out in the market to support its brand, whatever that might be, starts at the bottom. You know, how, how does a board that is so far removed from what's going on in the day-to-day operation operations of a company really get a better sense of who is it? What is this entity that they're overseeing beyond the CEO? Because the CEO can only say some level of what needs to be done. It's my way or the highway, which is not, not always the best way to lead. But I've always said that leadership, strong leadership comes from the bottom up and the top down, and it's sort of met somewhere in the middle. How do you really get well, a sense I of think- what's happening in that culture? That's a great question. And I would say, though, that I am more of the opinion that the phrase tone at the top is a moniker that really leads to, you know, change. helps the organization, leads to change, right? So if the CEO espouses the values of the organization and the board can help him or her to develop that and has a method for flowing that through, then the board can be confident that at least the message is getting to the folks who are actually dealing with customers and working on the street and what have you. What The board should always check up on this, though. And there are ways that the board can check up. There should always be, for instance, an employee hotline in place right. that employees should be, you know, uh, encouraged to use um, anonymously if that's the need and that sort of thing. Um, there can be 360 reviews, 360 degree reviews of the CEO and other management team members. The or the directors themselves can query either regulatory agencies or the community at large to say, how do you view this brand? What what do you think is going on here? And if they get responses that are like, wow, these folks are really aggressive, 
then maybe the board needs to take a look at that. Maybe that's a good thing, but maybe it isn't. So there is language that can be used that the board members need to ferret out. It's truly not enough to jet in for a meeting four times a year and walk away and say, I have fulfilled my board duties. A board member really needs to be in touch with the constituents of the organization to understand that that organization is doing a good job. Yeah, so so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on a company here that the a CEO who's very vocal about um, competitive environment, shall we say, and, and crushing the competition, and that's the CEO of T-Mobile. A lot of people are very familiar with with his his style and his approach to attacking the other telephone competitors out there. Which, quite frankly, you know, it's competition. Go for it to some extent. Dealing with something like that, and maybe T-Mobile is not the best example because you've dealt with other kinds of companies where maybe this actually gets in the way and inhibits a company and it might actually persuade a board to sort of stomp down on that kind of personality when, in fact, maybe it is good for the organization. Well, you know, I think that there is nothing wrong with a CEO who says we have to compete, and but it's the way in which we compete mm-hmm. that I think could lead to problems. And that's why I think organizations should always have employee hotlines and other ways to take a look at the way in which a CEO is instructing his management team and others to behave in in, in the competitive environment. You know, a Travis Kalanick at, at Uber is a different sort of yep. individual than one who says, we have to be super aggressive, but we want to stay on the right side of the law. And we want to do the right things from an ethical standpoint that um, human beings in a community do. So there are very different tones, I think. Yeah. So you look at tone as, as a way to sort of create the, the culture for the organization. But if the tone or, and I, I'm not sure I like that word too, I'll go find another way to describe this. It's you know, sort of a sense, it's a gut feeling. It's, it's a way of really being committed to an organization and wanting to be part there. And, and that's part of tone, but it's, you know, I'm not sure that tone at the top is the best way to say it because it creates a sense of imperialism. That's what I said earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's just a personal, okay. it's a personal bias, I guess I, I probably have. But if it's, if it's my way or the highway at the top and people are following that, you've created this sense of engagement at that level. How do you create a, you mentioned one way was this to do it with, with an employee hotline. But even still, when there's fear from a bottom level or a middle level to actually have their voice heard, even if it is anonymous, fear of retribution, we've all seen it over the years. Uh, how do you really dig down to make sure that, in fact, there isn't any fraud or in any kind of mis- abuse of what's going on? I mean, you look, you mentioned Uber the other, you know, just earlier. What happened at Uber? Oh, my God. And it just blew up in everybody's face. Exactly. I and I think that that's a great question to ask because, quite frankly, that gets to the heart of the entire concept that I think a board member should be focused on, which is not only our earnings and other financial metrics going in the right direction, but what is the quality of that? And what is the quality and the health of the organization? And there are a number of ways that one could get to that, but I think directors really need to be able to develop relationships with either other management team members or functional department heads, that sort of thing, so that they can get a bit of a scoop. I'll tell you, even in organizations where there is some fear, there is a certain amount of disclosure that might happen anonymously or perhaps indirectly that a director should be willing to pick up on. And it doesn't necessarily mean that 
oh, my goodness, I talked to one person, and he has a problem with so-and-so, so so he's got to get rid of so-and-so. No, it's just a data point, and it's something to keep in mind. How frequently, as a board member, do you look at those comments through the employee hotline or an ombudsman? I think a well-functioning audit committee looks at employee hotline comments every single meeting. Do they really? So, yeah, and if if the audit committee is starting to see a pattern, then there's a place where the audit committee can either take action itself or call for action to be taken by some, someone else. The audit committee that I, I think is a sort of best practices audit committee also insists that the company have an internal audit team or at least a knowledgeable, experienced internal auditor. The reason isn't to catch people doing something wrong. Right. The reason that one has an internal audit team is to help the organization function more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Now, it just so happens because they're turning over rocks that they might find things that they might find places where the company is about to go off the rails or do something illegal, whether that's per U.S. law or international law or something of that nature, and that can save the company from itself, if you will, and can save shareholders a tremendous amount of money. I think an internal audit team is absolutely key, as well as an employee hotline. Well, before it becomes front page news, as it has in many companies. And uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that. You think that that should be part of a a review in every audit committee meeting. It's the first time I've ever heard anybody ever say that, actually. Well, I think the problem becomes if you're not in touch with the audit committee or the internal audit committee or the internal audit team at every audit committee meeting, then chances are you are not building as strong a relationship with those folks as you should have. And often the internal audit team will come to the audit committee only after there is some big crisis or fire to put out. And that's not necessarily how you want to hear it. No, you don't want to hear about a crisis through uh, an outside legal counsel first. Right. (laughs) Which is all part of, I mean, it's all part of brand reputation. Again, we'll pick on Uber a little bit because they've been there, and and as well as, uh, obviously, Equivax, who was actually part of uh, a big breach, not necessarily a breach of uh, an employee problem, so to speak, although it was an employee problem because the employees were involved in understanding what was supposedly going on when it related to the cyber breach, but it became a bigger problem before the board even knew about it. This is actually part of your risk mitigation component and, you know, how much are you willing to listen to or avoid in order to let things either ride or not ride and how that impacts the overall organization from an outward facing perspective is critical to making sure that that value stays strong enough for for the outside shareholders as well, correct? I completely agree. And I would always recommend that one err on the side of over-disclosure rather than under-disclosure. And because that sort of honesty and authenticity and vulnerability and all that sort of thing actually speaks to the employees in a very positive way mm-hmm. by saying, look, we value this company. We want to let people know what happened and we want to take action to make sure it doesn't happen again. So sweeping it under the rug is actually, I think, what makes employees suspicious of board members right. and potentially significant shareholders. Well, and and boards are not typically visible to the employees. They're the the gods that meet once a quarter or every couple of of months to guide and oversight for everybody else. So I'm sure that there are lots of other things that we can get going on here, including you had mentioned full disclosure or more visibility, more transparency, really, which brings up a whole nother conversation that we could get in. But uh, we'll leave that for a second conversation. And thank you, Karen. It's been really a pleasure spending some time with you. And I look forward to doing with it again. Thank you so much, Nancy. This has been fun. Okay. Take care now. Bye-bye. 
This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.